0: CHAPTER TEN THE LORD OF RAJA During the day now went to the forest to tend the cattle with his playmates. The Gobies spent their time in imagining his activities in the forest. Their imagination ran riot when they thought of all the things he would be doing there. And they lived for that moment at dusk when he would return in a cloud of dust raised by the hooves of the cattle his hair and garlands covered with dust, joking and playing pranks with the Gopalas, fighting all with his loving glances. One day, Krishna told the gopis that the sage Durvasa had come to the opposite bank of the Yamuna and they should all go and worship him and take him some offerings. The gopis were ever willing to do his bidding and they prepared many delicacies and went to the Yamuna only to find that the river was in spate, and they could not cross. They returned forlornly, asked Krishna about their predicament. The Lord smilingly advised them to try again. Go to the Yamuna and tell her, O Yamuna, if you know Krishna to be ever firm in his vow of celibacy, then do thou part and make way for us to go to the other side. The gopis were startled at this statement, for their own experience told them, this was not true. However, they did as they were bidden, and lo, the watered, and they were able to cross over with the greatest ease. They approached the sage Durvasa and worshipped him and placed all the baskets of delicacies before him. The sage was noted for his abstemious eating habits, yet he polished off all the vast quantities of food brought for him by the Gobis and blessed them. On their return, they found that the Yamuna had closed her path, and they could not cross over. They reached the and explained their difficulty. He was naturally curious to know how they had managed to come to him. They told him of the miraculous way in which they had crossed, and with a smile, the sage said, Go and tell the Yamuna, O oh, Yamuna, if you know the sage Urvasa to be the most abstemious of eaters, then you should part and make way for us to cross over the gopis were amazed how could a sage make such a false statement when he had just swallowed vast quantities of food in front of their very eyes yet since he was also known for his temper they dared not remonstrate but went meekly and did as they were bidden great was their amazement when the yamuna parted and allowed them to cross At this behavior on the part of the river, they could not contain their curiosity and ran to their mentor and asked for the reason for these inexplicable occurrences. The Lord gave them a discourse on the law of karma. An action binds a person only when he feels himself to be the doer. The consequences of such an act is always bondage. However, when an act is done by a realized soul or by the Lord himself, It is done with no trace of ego and no involvement of the mind. It is a completely free and natched, and thus it has no consequences. It goes beyond the law of karma. The Lord's actions are totally devoid of personal motivation. He is a free agent, ever immersed in the bliss of Brahman, totally detached from everything, and thus, even though he may consort with a thousand women, Yet is he ever the Nitya Brahmachari, or perfect celibate. So also the sage Durva has no attraction or repulsion for the food placed before him. He ate only to please the Gobis, and not because he was in any way interested in the food. Had they brought nothing for him, he would still have been equally happy. For his happiness was derived not from the external object, but from his inner blissful self. Ever immersed in the self, he knew nothing of either hunger or thirst. Thus he had every right to be called an abstemious eater. In this delightful way did the Lord teach the gopis the secret of action without bondage to the wheel of karma. Once, during a festive season, the gopas went to a place of pilgrimage known as Ampikavana. After bathing in the river, they offered worship to Lord Shiva and his consort, Parvati. They spent the night there on the banks of the river. When they slept, a python caught hold of Nanda's leg. The Gopas woke up on hearing his screams and tried to drive it off with firebrands, but it would not let go. So they went and called Krishna, who touched the snake with his foot. Freed from its curse by the contact of his holy foot, the serpent assumed its original form of a celestial being. He prostrated the Lord and thanked Him for having released Him from His curse and returned to His abode. Another day, when Krishna and Balrama were roaming in the woods with the gopis, a servant of Kubera, the Lord of Wealth, happened to pass that way, and seeing the gopis, he abducted them. The two brothers chased him and rescued the gopis. Now Kamsa sent to Gokula a demon in the form of an ox called Arishta. Bellowing wildly with upraised tail and eyes, he charged down the small lanes, causing havoc amongst the people and cattle. Seeing the confusion caused by the ox, the Lord barred his way and provoked him by clapping his hands in the manner of bull fighters. The enraged bull charged at him with lowered horns, fixing him with his mean and bloodshot eyes. Krishna caught hold of him by his horns and gave him a mighty shove, with back ten feet. The maddened bull staggered to his feet and charged once more. Again the Lord caught hold of him by his cruel and pointed horns and threw him on the ground. Pinning him down with his foot, he pulled out his horns and killed him. After this feat, The sage Narada went once again to the court of Kamsa, for he considered it high time that the Lord moved out of Raja to enact further scenes of his enthralling life in different arenas. He proceeded to enlighten Kamsa about the identity of Krishna and Balrama. Know, O Kamsa, that the eighth child of Devaki, who was shown to you, was actually the daughter of Yashoda, the wife of the chieftain Nanda, who resides at Gokula, who was exchanged with Devaki's son Krishna, who now lives in Braja and of Nanda. Balrama, his brother, is also Vasudeva's son, by his wife Rohini, who also resides at Gokula as a guest in Nanda's house. They are the ones who have killed all the demons you have sent to destroy Krishna. Hearing this, Kamsa became furious with rage and took up his sword to kill Vasudeva, but was restrained by Narada. He chained Vasudeva and they de- once again in his dungeon and called the demon Keshi and commissioned him to go and kill the boys. Keshi took on the form of a huge horse and arrived in Gokula, snorting and furrowing the earth with a sharp hooves. Seeing Krishna approaching him fearlessly, the demon charged at him with his mouth wide open, as if to swallow him. Evading his upraised hooves, Krishna caught hold of his legs and whirled him round and round and flung him a hundred yards away. But Keshi was not beaten yet. He struggled to his feet and charged once again with his teeth barred menacingly and foam flecking his mouth. Krishna thrust his bare arm into his open mouth, and when the demon tried to bite off his arm, his teeth fell off. The Lord's arm now swelled in size and choked him to death. Krishna proceeded on his interrupted journey with the Gopalas to graze the cows. There on the hill slope, they played at ranchers and cattle thieves. A demon called Vyoma came there in the form of a gopa, and stole many of the boys who were playing the part of the cattle and shut them up in a remote cave. As he was coming back to steal more of them, Krishna caught hold of him and killed him, he then released the Gopalas and they returned to Raja at the end of the day and described the events of their day, how their make-believe game had turned into a thrilling adventure. With the killing of keshi Kamsa became desperate. He decided that the only way to kill the boys was to bring them to Mathura, where he could personally supervise their end. He summoned the famous wrestlers, mushti and told them that he would arrange a wrestling match for them in which they would have to kill their opponents, the boys Krishna and Balrama. He also told the chief of his elephant stable, to station the mighty mammoth Pira at the entrance to the wrestling amphitheatre in order to kill the boys. Let the festival of the great bow of Lord Shiva be ceremoniously inaugurated on the third lunar day, which is sacred to Shiva, and let all the inhabitants of the outlying villages be invited to participate in the festivities. This was Kamsa's proclamation. He realized that the only way to entice the boys to Matara was to send someone acceptable to the Gopas to invite and escort them. So he called Vasudeva's cousin Akrura, who was a great devotee of Vishnu, and spoke to follows Dear Akrura, you must do something for me, which only a close friend can do. I don't find anyone amongst the Bhojas. To match you in sincerity and ability, please go to the cowherd village of Gokula, where Krishna and Balrama, the sons of Vasudeva, are residing with Nanda. Invite them for the festival of the bow and bring them here in the chariot. Without any you may invite the rest of the Gopas also for the festivities so that they will not get suspicious. Akroda was a great devotee. Hearing of Krishna's greatness, he had been longing for a glimpse of him. But since he was in Kamsa's service, he had not dared to make the 14-mile journey to see him. He was overjoyed to find that out of all the people that Kamsa could have sent, he had chosen him to be the one to invite the boys and escort them to Matara. Such are the mysterious ways of the Lord that he makes use of even his so-called enemies in order to serve the interests of his devotees. But at the same time, Akruda's heart trembled with fear when he realized that he was only attempting bait to lure the children to their death in the arena, for the orders given by the king. He was in a panic of apprehension whether the Lord would realize his predicament and forgive him. Would he understand that he was an innocent instrument and had nothing to do with the plot? Akruda spent the night in great expectation and started for Vraja the next morning in a lovely jeweled chariot, calculated to entice the rustic minds of the boys. After travelling, his joy at being given the chance of seeing the Lord surpassed his despair at the purpose of his mission and he allowed his mind to revel and wander freely over the delights he would share with the Lord when he met him. The fact that I have seen so many auspicious signs at dawn indicates that today I shall see him who is the joy-giver and enlightener of the universe, the refuge and preceptor of all holy men, the most auspicious object for the eyes. As soon as I see him, I shall jump down and prostrate before him, and he will place his blessed hands on my head and cast his smiling look at me, and I shall attain to supreme bliss. And if perchance he embraces me with his powerful arms, my bondage of karma will be broken. To none is he particularly dear or friendly, nor is anyone the object of his enmity or indifference but still he blesses his devotees in a manner which is appropriate to their needs, just as a heavenly wish-yielding tree, the Kalpaga, gives to each person according to his requirements. Ruminating in this fashion, Akrura quite forgot where he was going and allowed those to go as they liked, so that at last, by the time he came to the outskirts of Vrindavan, twilight had fallen. He now began to notice the footprints of the Lord. Jumping out of the chariot in excitement he exclaimed, Here is the dust of my lord's feet. With these words he took up a handful of the dust and placed it reverently on his head. Tears coursed down his cheeks, and he burst into raptures for Brindavan. Ah, lucky Brindavan, O oh fortunate trees, who can extol your virtues? His divine feet have played on this ground. His clothes have caught on these thorns. His body has been stroked by these leaves. This divine breeze has ruffled his curls and carries with it the perfume of his breath. So saying, Akrura jumped out of the chariot, threw himself on the sanctified ground of Vrindavan and breathed deep of its intoxicating air and clasped the trees and vines to his chest in a paroxysm of rapture. Then, proceeding a little further into the village, he saw from a distance the Lord of his heart standing in the courtyard, looking even more beautiful than his imagination had pictured him. Krishna was waiting outside, as if to see the macaws, but actually to get the first glimpse of his devotee, for his longing to see Akrura was equal to the latter's desire to see him. He had just had his bath after returning from the forest and wore his usual yellow garment. His hair was bunched on top with peacock feathers stuck in the middle and a garland of white flowers surrounding it. The eyes in the feathers and his eyes were wide open in eager anticipation to meet his devotee. And his lips were parted in a delightful half-smile, overflowing with love. On seeing him, Akrura jumped out of the chariot and threw himself at his feet. Immediately Krishna lifted him up with both hands and embraced him and led him into the house. Akrura was too overwhelmed to be able to speak. He could only lift his eyes and hold him close to him as if he could not bear to let him go. He felt as he was drowning in a sea of nectar. Gentle hands were stroking him, and a lilting voice was inquiring tenderly about his welfare. Slowly his senses returned, but like the waker who knew the dream to be false, Akrura realized that his life was but a dream, and the only reality was this bundle of bliss he held in his arms. Nanda and Yashoda welcomed him and all the Gopas crowded round to hear some city news. The whole night was spent in discussing Kamsa's commands and whether the boy should accept this invitation to destruction. Krishna laughed at his father's fears and told him that the king's commands had to be obeyed. If not, I would surely get into trouble if he returned empty-handed. Reluctantly, Nanda agreed. Though his heart was filled with foreboding, he asked the Gopas to collect milk and milk products and other gifts to be presented to the king and to harness their carts for the journey. The announcement was broadcast all over the settlement that all those who wished to take part in the festival of the bow were welcomed to him to Matra the next morning. The gopis to whom the Lord was their very life breath were overwhelmed with grief to hear that someone had come to take him away to the city. The actual meaning of the word Akrura is not cruel, but to the gopis he appeared to be the personification of cruelty. How did such a cruel man get such an unsuitable name? They lamented. Come to wrench our beloved from our arms. O oh, cruel fate that separates us before we have assuaged our thirst! How are we to endure the excruciating sorrow of separation from him, even for a day? The wishes of the women of Mathura are soon to be fulfilled, for tomorrow the lord of Gokula will be entering their city, and they will be able to imbibe from the cup of his charming eyes, intoxicating glances. Surely he will forget his rustic playmates and be charmed by the beauties of the city. What shall we do, oh friends? Shall we throw ourselves in front of the chariot so that he will have to ride over us if he wants to go? No, no, said another that would be most inauspicious. It's bad luck to put obstacles in front of a traveller. He is sure he soon as soon as the festival is over. Thus the gopis lamented, imagining the pangs of their prospective separation from their beloved. The night passed in this fashion, and with the break of dawn, the gopis began to cry out loudly. O Govinda! O Damodara! O Madhava! they said. Knowing the turbulent state of their minds, sent Sri Dhamma, to comfort, comfort them. They were not satisfied with his words, but they were too shy to go in front of the stranger and accost him themselves. Little did they realize that this party was to last for the rest of their lives. The next morning, the entire community was plunged in grief. The gopis thronged the lanes, wait, last glimpse of him, was the custodian of their hearts. With piteous, tear-filled eyes they gazed at him as he got into the chariot with Akrura and Balrama, Nanda and the other Gopas and Gopalas followed in ox-drawn carts laden with pots of curls and other objects for presentation to the king. As he passed them each of the gopis felt a message Passed from his eyes to theirs And this filled them with hope And made them forget the actual moment of parting Even from afar They felt his eyes brimming with love Caressing them in waves of kindness They remained where they were Motionless like pictures Drawn on canvas Watching the chariot till it disappeared from sight And only the little flag was seen merrily to them as if by order of their beloved. Soon even that disappeared, and only a cloud of dust remained. Then even that vanished, and they were left bereft, feeling as if their hearts had been torn from their bodies. At last they returned to their empty homes to spend the rest of their lives singing about His glories, with their minds absorbed in patient of his divine form until they merged into him at the end of their earthly sojourn. Thus did Krishna leave Gokula, followed by the carts of the Gopalas and the hearts of the Gopis. One phase of his life was over. Never would he return to Raja as a simple cowherd boy to enjoy the simple pleasure of life a new chapter was opening in which he would have to play the role of king-maker. There is no episode in his life as poignant as a stay with the Gopalas of Vrindavan, as entrancing as the melodious call of his flute. This chapter in his life, as the blue boy of Vrindavan, is one which has thrilled the hearts of his devotees at this very age. Some of the greatest poems and paintings of the culture of India have been inspired by this phase of his life. Thus ends the tenth chapter in the first book entitled Leela" of Sri Krishna Leela named The Lord of Vraja. Hari Om